0: the erc20 token was was part of the mist project right uh i oh wow i didn't know that yeah actually like i joked that my career is basically a series of failed products but those products were built with bricks <laughs> that outlasted everything that i've built
1: right <laughs> hey there good people in crypto land i'm matt Lysing and this is my podcast decent people welcome to the conversation on today's shows i talked to alex van de Sand, who's better known uh, on social media as avsa avsa was way back in the day a uh, very early ethereum developer uh, he uh, helped develop the mist wallet and along with fabian vogelstetter we talked about uh, his upbringing in brazil uh, part of which was in a rural village where his dad was a fisherman at one point and his mom owned an ice cream shop we talked about his return to Rio de Janeiro. And we also talked about how the ERC-20 token, which is, uh, as you guys know, the basis for all sorts of altcoins, or uh, you might want to call them shitcoins, was part of the missed wallet project with Fabian Bogelstetter that AVSA developed, which was something I didn't know. We also uh, studiously avoided talking about the Dow incident, which, if you've read my book, you know AVSA was a huge player in that drama. So I uh, hope you enjoy the conversation. Let's get to it. Yeah, so I, I was laughing because uh, I was just looking up, you know, some stuff on you, Alex. And on your Twitter banner page, you've got my book there and you've highlighted uh, where I called you an excellent husband uh, in the in the description. <laughs> so,
0: I, I think she even tweeted that. Uh, something like, it's so easy for men to be great dads and great husbands and it's so easy for women to be tagged as terrible mothers and terrible wives for just doing basic stuff right so yeah and, and i think she's 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 my rock but she's also the person that helps me like put my feet on the ground and i think that's very true right i highlighted because i found it a very very funny quote and i joked that just to be just to make sure I'm not married to to Matt. So he's not he doesn't actually know much about me being a husband outside of that. And like she she she's quite happy with me being a husband. It's just that she finds she often mentions how she she's a doctor, she's an esthesiologist, and she's also like a terrific mom and she she's always learning and doing all of that. And she's like saving lives. She's at the same time, so like one day, she's, one morning she's waking up to save lives and then she's going to pick up the kids from school and then she's learning about how kids learn while they sleep and how the patterns help people grow and things like that. And honestly, nobody wrote a book about her, right? I think she she's done so much more good to the world and yet... I've just happened to be in this crypto thing, and boom, I got into like three books, and I, I never saved a life, right? And, uh, but but still, I do have the that little, I, at least I, I can tell her that yes, I do have uh, final proof, published proof that I'm good, uh, good husband,
1: <laughs> I think that's funny. Yeah, well I remember, so that was in the like, character descriptions that I have at the beginning of the book, just so that people can kind of keep everybody You know straight because there's a lot of characters in the book but um so i was kind of writing them tongue-in-cheek a little bit trying to make it a little bit funny but i remember i I thought of you for that because i remember in the heat of the Dow attack you had gotten up one morning to make her breakfast because she was had an early shift at the hospital and i think you know you were up at like 5 a.m or something and um that's when i think you connected with somebody uh, online and, and you guys like tried to launch you know like the white hat hack attack or whatever but i just you know i remember that you know you getting up and making her breakfast i thought that's pretty cool he's he's an excellent husband so <laughs> oh thank you you have told us a lot about your wife uh, you you guys have a couple you have kids as well
0: we have two kids yes we've been together for 21 22 years um but we just the kids came almost with like so she's one is five the other is two so they're they came together with my crypto career in the sense, right so mm-hmm. she my wife always told me that my 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 daughter may be very lucky because when she was born was one of the first crypto rallies so that was, that was nice <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> yeah that's good um timing timing your children to uh the the crypto bull market Let, let's go back a little bit um you're in rio de janeiro uh in the copacabana neighborhood i believe um did you grow up in Brazil as well? Did you grow up in Rio?
0: I did. I interesting story. I was actually born in a more north eastern, eastern city, like a small fisherman village. My 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 dad and my mothers were like they wanted to. Like, they were sort of a hippie, and they wanted like to have kids in the middle of nature. So they moved when before I was born. They moved into a very very small village where like my my father, my father had a bakery. At some point, he had like a fisherman boat. My mother had like an ice cream shop. They, they were really those like small, small town folks. And then, and then I came back to Rio when I was like a small, small kid, and I grew up here. Yet, a lot of people assume that I'm not Brazilian. A lot of people assume that I'm Dutch or something. And I've had people come to talk to me and. And they were like, they, they, "Come talk to me in in Dutch," and then just, <laughs> "Oh, I just assumed you would understand what I'm t- telling you." But
1: yeah, I am. So debating. just based on your last name, of course, right, Van de Sen? Of course. Yeah. So is your father Dutch then, or
0: my grandmother's Belgian?
1: Okay. And so, did you like grow up? Going out on the fishing boat before you moved back to Rio and doing stuff like that, where um, you hang around the ice cream shop, like stealing ice cream cones.
0: Exactly. So yeah, I, I had a very fortunate childhood with with like just jumping on rivers and climbing trees and eating eating fresh cashew from from trees. And wow. then I came back to Rio, and I think uh, I, I I still remember like I, I think I, that's probably around the time that I got. St- Really interested in computers. So, my father bought what, what was still like a black and white computer that would attach to the TV and was telling, starting to like to tell us about programming and were, like fascinated. And I, I probably one of my earliest memories of computers was him just opening like a program that would ask you your name and then he would remember you. Like, it would hi, Alex hello to whatever <laughs> let's play a game and I was like fascinated oh my god the computer re- remembers me that is fantastic like tv doesn't do that TV, the tv <laughs> never knew where I, I was now the computer does that's that's crazy
1: so it was that sort of um aspect of, of computers and like that it's like this magic kind of machine that is, is that what was fascinating for you and that like made you want to learn more about them I think
0: I always liked the idea of being able to create your tiny little world, right? I would always loved to draw and and draw like whole universes, and then you could like make those stuff inside a computer, and that always felt felt fantastic, to be honest. And mm. I think that's that's how I got into into programming and drawing and illustration, which led me to be a designer, right? Which was sort of like the mix of tech and an art I would say
1: yeah and so when you came back to Rio what what year are we talking about there and what was the like what what kind of computer like landscape were you in at that point like what kind of models or, or whatever were you using
0: so this was probably 86 87 so uh and Brazil I think was still very closed, the market in computers in Brazil was very closed. So Brazil did this weird thing during the the 80s and the 70s, in which they decided to just, they they saw like the Amazon and thought, this would be a perfect place to build a city just to build computers, right? And then in the 80s, almost all of the computers were just locally produced in this like city in the center of the Amazon. So probably I got one of those, like one of those like IBM clones, building my house, uh, and then slowly like the market was opened up with on the '90s, and we were able to get like decent computers.
1: It's interesting that Brazil does that um, from time to time. Like, isn't Brasilia way out in the middle of nowhere, the capital, and it's sort of like a very planned city in the middle of the jungle, basically.
0: Ah uh, yes, Brasilia is right in the ge- sort of geographical center of brazil, and it's 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 been a planned city so Brazil does those weird things where suddenly it like the history of Brazil looks a lot like the American history, but out, like upside down in in many ways right and and I think. Washington, D.C. is also a planned capital, right? It was also built yeah. as a- Good point. Like, built on a swamp, To be actually. specifically <laughs> for that. And Brasilia did that in the, in the 60s. And it's, it's a very interesting city because it, it looks like a city built for, for an alien civilization that has four wheels, I would say, which is basically <laughs> like- just, Because that, that is the native population, right? It's some sort of blocky alien that has four wheels. But it just happens um, to carry humans inside it
1: yeah i remember seeing a uh, documentary i think on goodyear the tire company and they obviously they were getting their rubber from from the amazon and they had these crazy factories and cities like that were there and then i think they all shut down but they've the, the jungle has just kind of like overgrown on these old buildings it was just really kind of spooky once you're sh- super into computers um what was the path you thought you wanted to take? Like, or are you you know, you said you wanted to be a designer, so you're combining some of the art and then some of the, the computer stuff. How'd you go about making that um, a reality?
0: I wanted to, I wanted, I, I knew I liked computers and I knew I liked like drawing and I didn't know how to fit them. And then I sort of found design almost like randomly on that. And I think... I slowly realized that within design, you could you could do that. You could create like this those those digital and and physical worlds combined. But I would say that looking back at my career, most of the good the stuff that I'm proud of that I built, what I was actually doing was not designing, was not coding. What I was actually doing was translating. Right And I think hmm. the things I'm most proud of having done were things I looked back and and really what I was doing is I was getting something complicated, and I was translating to another medium, right I was translating into a visual medium, I was translating into like an interface, I was translating into words, and those are things that like I like, just understanding something complicated. And 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 being fascinated about it, and wanting to tell the rest of the world that couldn't understand it, but wanting to try to tell them in their language, in a way.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting because I I feel very much the same about writing and about being a reporter. You know, like you're you're basically I'm trying to translate complicated things into into easy to understand you know um, words basically, and uh, that, that's kind of what. I think appealed to me so much about um ethereum and blockchain uh was was that it was fascinating but you know it just it definitely needed some translation for a a wider public or a wider audience so did you go to art school or what did you like how did you figure you know like to to make you know take the next step in, in your career
0: i went to a state design school in rio de Janeiro, which is like one of the first design schools in latin america and they are even there, like they were still like, split with the idea that you, you enter that, you either you're going to be building chairs or you're going to be designing <laughs> album covers, right? That was like the, the two paths uh, you had. That was it. And then... <laughs> One or the other. Yeah, I mean, th- those are the only two things you can do, right? Chairs or album covers. <laughs> Suddenly, I, I, I met someone from Microsoft, a guy from Microsoft decided to make like a project inside there and the idea was that they would do it was like a conceptual project where they would tell that he would tell you about all those like futuristic things that they had technologies that they had nfcs and things like that and they would just ask you hey create something cool that could exist in the future and i was super passionate about that i was i like i think that was one of those like career deciding moments, where I, oh my God, this is fantastic. I can actually, I can, I can do those both things, right? It's not album covers, not chairs, it's about creating something that is useful, it's technical, but it's also 2D and it's also like digital. Uh, and it's about, again, trying to translate far off ideas into something that people could use. And that was very fun. And that's when I wanted to Okay, what I want to do is this thing called interaction design, an interface design. Almost none of my professor professors knew about that, right? So I had to sort of like learn what that was in the first place.
1: Yeah, so you're basically kind of just fast forward, it would be like a user experience kind of design, making sure that things are easy and kind of intuitive for, for folks, that that sort of thing. Precisely. So th- this is the part you are going to hate. But w- when did you uh, get into crypto, or how did you first? It was uh, <laughs> when did Bitcoin probably come across your radar? Uh, I read a,
0: I read an article about saying something about Bitcoin, which was I've like, some old site like Mahalo.com, something on one of those like defunct sites, I would say, that had a very clickbait headline saying, "Look, this thing is." Either going to be like overthrowing governments or it's going to be forbidden in the next few months, and yes, it's real. We tested it, and it would describe how bitcoin worked and that got okay. me interested. I was like yeah that's that's cool and Then I saw a talk on someone saying, "Hey about the real possibilities that cryptocurrency allowed uh, allowed you, and those are things that and those those were things like, oh, you can have your car talk to the other car. You can have an organization that is just digital. And that's when I first heard about smart contracts. And then yeah. I was like, whoa, Bitcoin is going to be so awesome in the future when it has all the smart contracts. I'm going to just wait and, and see. And as you, as you know, Bitcoin never evolved in that direction, right? It was just... Like they, yeah. they, it seemed like they were simply not interested in, in doing that. And then, okay, I guess I need to keep an eye on what is going to be next big thing that will happen in this, this
1: space. And that is when Ethereum appeared. Yeah. And one of my favorite stories in the book was um, how you and Ryan Zur got to know each other. Uh, I think you, like one of you guys, put out a post for, like, let's do an Ethereum meetup, right? And you were, the only two guys that showed up, and it was like uh, you, you. You start yeah. having lunches at this. Was the restaurant
0: exactly? That's that, that's basically it. it was me, Zuer, and and some and another guy that it, it's still a friend of ours, and 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 I think like we were the only people interested in interior and, and Rio probably
1: back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because a lot of I think you mentioned to me, and this, this might be in the book too. Like. Uh, a lot of South America was very into Bitcoin, right? Because of like different governments had, you know, sometimes disastrous monetary policies, right? Where hyperinflation was just like taking everyone's savings. So I think Argentina and a couple others, you know, there was a lot, it's a pretty hardcore Bitcoin community um, from the from the beginning there because it was, a, you know, an option that they didn't have before, right? To kind of keep some of their money. Um, but you guys in Brazil, you, you're like probably one of the first Ethereum folks down in, in the whole continent.
0: Well, I think Bitcoin does appeal to Brazilians on that sense, right? The generation of my parents—they lived through that, like they—they they lived through a phase in which the government simply decided that, like they—they they had no way. Brazil was even like luckier than a lot of like South American countries in that sense. Argentina had like so hyperinflation in the last ten years. Uh, hyperinflation is not something that this generation of Brazilians knew. Like the generation of my father and my mother, they lived through that. I like I I was a millionaire when I was a kid, right? Probably like every like I I, I think my allowance was probably like in the millions, right? I I, I would <laughs> receive like hundreds of thousands of of current in 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 currency just to buy like a comic book, right? It was something like yeah, right. 500,000 right. was the cost of a comic book. So everyone was a millionaire. And at some point in the, in the early 90s, like the, the government simply decided that the best way to fight inflation, since everything else had failed, was to just freeze everyone's account and not allow anyone to withdraw more than X. So this, the, people remember this, right? This is sort of like the shocking thing that people will, will not forget. And I think that's, that's what attracted a lot of people on, on the, on the, for, for Bitcoin. But I guess yeah. what attracts you is also like a reflection of, of what you see the, the problems out, like outside, the problems in, in your sphere, right? Whenever I talk to like French people, I hear a lot of them talking about using smart contracts to reduce bureaucracy and make government more efficient. When I talk with like more with Americans, often what they want is how do we how do we avoid like a government that is like too big or or a government that is more like responds more to people. When when I we used to talk to the to people, like, a lot of people on the human community were from former Soviet blocs, from Russia and from Hungary, and a lot of them were basically okay. We we like we are living this like maybe short-lived democracy phase, and we need to do everything in our power to build the tools that will allow that, like allow this freedom to keep existing even if the government tries to close it down again. Yeah. And I think my experience was more about corruption. And what I really loved about was the idea that you could build an organization That had money, that had votes, but that nobody could touch a single cent of the money outside of it, without going through like a very strict uh, contract.
1: Yeah, that's one of the powers of it. I think, in my opinion, is that you can bring so many different ideas to it, and kind of like you can make something out of it that might, you know, make a situation in the real world much better or more um, transparent or more honest because it's got the set sort of rules. Um, so along that line, um, y- you were, you and Jordy by Lena were, you guys, uh, created Mist, which was one of the earliest, uh, Ethereum wallets. How did you, how did you and Jordy meet? Cause I thought Fabian w- wasn't he. No, not, not Jordy.
0: You're thinking about Fa- Fabian. Oh, I'm
1: sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Fabian. Sorry. Sorry. Um, so yeah, Fabian Bullsitter. Um, again, though, I think he was sort of based in, in Europe. Uh, how, how did you guys meet? And can you tell me a little bit about like building that wallet and, and what the rest of the infrastructure was like back at that time?
0: Sure. So I got into the Ethereum Foundation by by just like I got it into the into a time in which you could go to the forum, make a an answer, and people, everybody on the Ethereum Foundation would answer you. Like Vitalik would answer like a post on the forum. And, and, and that's when I, I think I first downloaded a piece of software from Gavin Wood called Aleph Zero, which he like, which was a crap piece of software, but it was like so fascinating because of all it could do. And then I like tried redesigning it. I posted it on the forums and then Gavin messaged me saying, Hey, I, I want to talk to you. Let's talk about this. And then he told me, look, I think. I like your design, but I think you're not thinking far, far, far enough, right? You're not, you're not grasping the full vision of it, and which surprised me because I thought, hey, I, I, I thought I was doing something like very, like, complete, completely and, thinking yeah. everything, and he was, no, you're not going far enough. Let me tell you about Web 3 right? And I guess that's where when I first heard the term, and so Gavin and Jeff they had this vision of like a, a, a browser that would be the foundation of any web. And I think part of it was, uh, and, and that's something we failed on the like, discussions of the f- current web tree in which like it wasn't based on servers, it wasn't going to be used, working in normal browsers. You have to do everything through crypto. You were like, it was like going to be everything peer to peer and things like that. And so I started building that, as inside the Jeff team with Jeff, and I, I was having to design it using Q, which is a horrible interface language, just, just barely as allows you to make buttons and and like switches. And I told Jeff, "Look, Jeff, I don't think I'm qualified to do this. I think I need someone else to help me. Probably someone that would be very good at building like single one page apps on using." Web technology, and then he told me, "I think I know the guy. There's like this weirdo that's always appearing on in in Berlin meetups. He he really wants to do like Ethereum things, and he introduced me to Fabian. So I I hired hired Fabian, but Fabian is a very unique like guy. He never like I hired him, but at some point." if If you saw our or interaction you you could figure out he was my boss right because he was like <laughs> and he 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 had like very strong opinions and very strong ideas and he would talk literally for hours <laughs> and the most simple things right, and we would debate and discuss and it was very 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 cool right i had i worked yeah. with Fabian for two three years unmissed, and, and and was like one of the best work my one one of my best works and that is sort of like when we uh, in the beginning it was like just two of us
1: yeah And if you don't know fabian he he went on to develop the um ERC20 token which is what allowed basically every every crypto you've heard of like the, the, to to mint a new coin um so
0: the ERC20 token was was part of the mist project right uh i oh wow i didn't know that yeah, actually, like I joke that my career is basically a series of failed products, but those products were built with bricks <laughs> that outlasted everything that I built, right? So we were doing this wallet and we wanted really to highlight, because everyone was doing, like every wallet in Ethereum back then was just doing, like, you can transfer Ether, you can sell Ether on exchange, you can import your pre-sale wallet, right? It was absolutely no different than Bitcoin. And he really wanted to push hard the difference uh, of saying, look, this is not your normal crypto. This is something else completely different. And the way you get there is that we need to inter- show them how to interact with contracts. We sh- need to show them an interface that would allow you to interact with any contract that you you, you want without having to know the the, the UI. And we should also have tokens like tokens. We knew tokens were going to be a big, big deal. It wasn't the white paper. So we started a discussion on, on like on the community saying, Hey, let's talk about tokens and like, what is the token standard? How do we do that? Um, and, and, and Fabian went down and created the token standard for Mist. Mist was the first wallet to ever have a token to support a token we launched token for that like there was even like a unicorn token which if you send money as a donation to the foundation you would get like a tiny unicorn that you could like collect on on your wallet and and the reason and the for NFTs. that is we just wanted people to play it sort of was sort of like an nft right like we just wanted mm-hmm. people to play around with with the idea of hey it even is playful, right? It can be fun. You don't need to have a PhD yeah. to understand it. You can do stuff. You can, you could download Mist and you would be able to uh, like go there. We would show you how to write a contract, show you demo, demos how to write a contract. In a few clicks, just copying and paste code, you could deploy a DAO, deploy a token funder. Uh, you could deploy your own RC20 token and you could just have fun with it, right? That that was the plan.
1: Yeah. That's really cool, I didn't know that. And one thing you mentioned, uh, I wanted to just circle back. Uh, you mentioned Gavin Wood, obviously huge huge um, influence in Ethereum. Um, he wrote the yellow paper that kind of like specked it all out and uh, took Vitalik's you know, main architecture and just made it like the blueprints. Um, was he the first one that you remember using the term Web3 to mean? Like the next iteration of the web he's the one who taught me that yeah yeah okay so let's let's like keep going on on the uh failed projects you've had <laughs> but the building blocks that are still there <laughs> what um was um did you get involved in the ethereum naming uh service at this point or was that a little bit later because yes. i wanted to talk to you because about yes, that so- because i just uh, I just talked to Nick Johnson for uh, a, a podcast and, and he's, he's a fascinating guy, um, but maybe you could just kind of tell us a little bit about ENS and, and why you think it's important and what it allows people to do.
0: Naming is also one of those things that predates Ethereum, right? Uh, ENS was the first naming system like in Ethereum, but naming itself predates Ethereum to the point in which you could say that it inspired Ethereum, right? One of the first non-financial use cases of a blockchain was Namecoin, right? And and it was like a whole, like basically a copy of roughly a copy of of Bitcoin, which you could just mine names instead of mining currency. And I guess Vitalik look at that and, and, and looked, took a look at other projects and realized, hey, wh- why do we have to have like a brand new blockchain for names, another blockchain for tokens, another blockchain for like trading? Why can't we have like everything in a single blockchain computer, right? So that's why like when you see like the white paper, it had, it talked about naming, it talked about tokens, talked about DAOs. So we always knew like that we would do that at some point. In fact, one of the reasons that we didn't have checksum on Ethereum addresses was that everyone on the team thought, yeah, nobody was going to be using Ethereum addresses anyway. We're all going to be using like names and a name register thing things like that, right? Gavin Wood had his own name register that he deployed in the early days of the of uh of Ethereum and that that was that.
1: And let me just jump in. And mm-hmm. what you're talking about here is rather is that rather than Using the long string of random characters, right, for your address, it would just you you use like uh Alex.eth or mine is Matt L or Matthew L.eth. Uh, that's, but that didn't really kind of come about for quite a while, right?
0: Exactly. It took.
1: <laughs> again, a lot of the things that we
0: thought in the early days, we thought oh, that this is going to be, it's going to be easy, it's going to be fast, it's going to be great. Uh, and yeah. and it took like years and billions of dollars to realize that vision, right? A lot of <laughs> small things like that. Ines is a great example of that, uh, because I thought sure, Ines, and it was also the same time we were getting ready to integrate uh, Swarm into Mist, meaning that you could always da- like navigate directly to uh, a decentralized web page by just putting the Swarm hash, and we knew look Swarm hashes. Nobody's going to remember those swarm hashes. It's the same problem as an Ethereum address. We need to have like a simple name for that, a simple short, a uh, shortener for that. And, and, and it should be the same thing, right? You should be able to have like
1: a name, like alex.if or nick.if. And Swarm was the browser, right? The decentralized browser that you were talking about before that kind of didn't end up going anywhere. Is that right? Decentralized file storage, right? The idea
0: in the early days of Ethereum that there would be like, it would be made of a, tr- the web tree was a tripod, right? It would be Ethereum for everything that needed consensus. Whisper it would be a decentralized chat protocol for everything that was just fast messages that you didn't need to, like you just wanted to send a message to someone, you didn't need to have like a consensus thing. And then Swarm would be decentralized file storage, right? It's an interesting metaphor because a tripod cannot stand with a single leg, but that's basically what the Web3 became, right? Because we never got the other two, right, I think. And it thoroughly missed it, it missed. I think like, we definitely, we still need to have like decentralized file storage and, and decentralized messaging. We do have a little bit with APFS,
1: but- Yeah, I was gonna ask you about that. Yeah how is it different or what, what is it? Is it, um, how do you compare the, t- the idea of what, um, you know, the, the centralized storage was and then what IPFS became?
0: Well, the idea of both are the same, right? The idea is that when you go into a website, you are going to a location and asking, you're asking a computer in a location saying, Hey, give me a website, right? I, if I give you like Google.com, Google.com will resolve to, uh, an IP address, which will be something like 8.8.8. That IP address will then ask a computer and say, hey, what what is Google.com? Give me that content, right? And he will give you whatever is that computer. So you're asking a, a location, not a content. A IPFS or Swarm, you ask for a hash. You go to you can you can have like let's say Avsa.if, which will resolve to a hash, will be a, a big number and that hash is not a location it's not a computer telling you that content it's actually the content itself it's a signature of the content itself right so anyone can give you that right you're just asking it's it's instead of asking going to the library and just picking up whatever is the book on the third shelf on the like left right you are telling hey i want a book that has this cover right i it's it's green there's this thing on the title and it doesn't really matter who gives that book to you right as long as you go to the library and say hey this is the book book content i want this is the title this is the author the author this is the like edition and like your librarian will be able to bring you that precise book it doesn't actually matter where she got it from or who was with, who had that book before you Right, so that is the really the idea between decentralized storage, right? You're just yeah. and the nice thing is that it it's good it's almost uncensorable, right? Because as long as anyone has a copy, that that thing will still be able around when you when you ask it, right? And of course, yeah. the problem is that often nobody has a copy right, and I think that's the problem. not we have IPFS itself. But really, with the architecture that we decided for Web3, in the sense that uh, some NFTs they keep they they keep their image in in IPFS, but then and almost every every time what you're doing is you're just asking like a provider like Amazon to actually host the image for you. And when we are building Mist, we we had this belief, this naive belief, to be honest. That everyone was running a browser was also a node. They would be like a full your node or a light your node. They would be also like hosting files for swarm. And whenever you downloaded a website from the decentralized storage, you would be also be uploading a website. So the more people that would access a website. The more people, like the fastest that website would load, because more people had backups and had local backups, right? And we, it was a very, like, it was a very, like, beautiful architecture, but it just, the tech just wasn't there yet. Um I was telling you, and I think we were talking about ENS, where ENS fits there, and so. Swarm the, and the IPFS has the same problem as in Kirin address. It's just a long, unmemorable like string of random characters that you can't just know. And we knew hey, there, there's a very simple solution. We just use the blockchain to create a consensus and know, look, mat.if is, is going to point to this Ethereum address, to that Bitcoin address, to this Swarm file, to this IPFS file, and that's going to be it.
1: Yeah. Is ENS? Do you think going to be used as well to try to um, solve for digital identity in a decentralized way um, when you don't have a middleman or somebody who can vouch for for identity in a peer to peer system? Is that does do you see that happening in in any way with with ENS?
0: It's beautiful because I think it's one of the things that that. That happened like on ENS on in its own. It wasn't what we created it for, but it sort of became, right? Uh, so when we when we created ENS was just really a shortcut. A shortcut for your address, a shortcut for your baby website. Where it came from was that Nick had just joined the foundation. He like I I I really was interested in doing like a, a naming system for Mist. And then Nick joined the foundation and and posted on the forums, hey, I I have this solution for a naming system I would love to discuss with someone. And we started talking and we decided to collaborate and and launch this thing. And I thought, hey, I'm going to, that's okay. It's it's a feature from, just a a small feature for Mist. I'm going to work on this in a month. We're going to release it. And then that's it, right? It's the end of the thing. It's going to be working forever and nobody needs to work on that anymore. And then that's what we did. And Nick Nick kept working on ENS. I went back to working on Mist once. Like it took instead of t- t- taking a month, it took six months. And then that's the first error. And then the second error is that I left to go back to Mist because, yeah, this is just a feature that was built. Uh Nick, on the other hand, kept work building and kept working on it. Um, and 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 I think it's a great lesson because this little feature that I thought was just, yeah, naming thing, became then the central point of a digital identity. It then became like they uh, the last year they did an a- airdrop, and then that airdrop became like the the centerpiece of a billion dollar ecosystem with lots of tools and lots of companies,
1: and and they're now they're they're shifting into a DAO too, right?
0: It is a DAO, exactly it is like yeah, almost yeah. everything every decision is just part of the DAO, and it tells me like why a lot of the things that we thought would work didn't work like because we were building like a little browser that would be a full node that would be all of those things, and a lot of things we thought that were just like a small feature became billion dollar industries like exchanges
1: and tokens and naming, yeah. I like to ask people like you who have been in Ethereum basically from the very beginning. I know you've definitely touched on this, you know, about like the nativity the and some of the mistakes, but in general, like in 2022, you know, going back to, I don't know, 2014 or 15 when you got involved, how are things going in your opinion in, in the big picture? And, and where do you... What are you happy about, and what what are you surprised that still um hasn't kind of come to fruition?
0: Mm. I guess everything became mainstream a lot faster like in in many ways i would if i if I could talk to like myself five years ago, in many ways, I would be like shocked on on how much something became mainstream. And in many many ways, I would be shocked on how much stuff did not evolve, right? Both of those things are true, right? In many ways, it evolved a lot. And in many other ways, it just didn't evolve enough, right? And I would say that it evolved a lot in, in the mainstreamization of things, right? Suddenly, everybody's talking about NFTs and tokens and... People raise billions of dollars doing, like, token sales and things like that. On the other hand, uh, a lot of it was about finance and financialization. A lot of those early ideas were left, right? What about this whole idea of, like, making a website that doesn't go offline? About this idea of making apps that you can't stop or you can't censor? What about this whole idea where you create a DAO that governs itself and keeps it existing even if, if, if like, if, if the developers themselves are arrested? Right, Tornado Cat, the Tornado Cash DAO. Right, the purpose of a DAO was precisely for that. If you build a technology that is deemed dangerous, and they started like sanctioning you and arresting people, the DAO should be there to still like keep the thing running, right?
1: Yeah, which is what's going on with Tornado Cash, right? It's still it's still running. You can access it if you want, but
0: <laughs> yeah, but the, the <laughs> DAO itself closed. Of. right? they they, they had a, like a DAO, and then they like they closed the DAO as soon as, as things yeah, got hot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, which honestly, I don't blame them.
1: Yeah, I'm, what I mean is the software. Software is still alive. The smart contracts are still alive. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And there are a lot of people who who censor Tornado Cash transactions, but still, like the beauty of the architecture is that even if ninety percent of all validators did not include Tornado Cash transactions in their blocks, after five minutes, you still have like you still have a ninety percent chance of being included in. Like after five minutes, right, and and so it is beautiful how 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 censorship resistant it is, right, in in a sense. Yeah. But on the other, like we should, like I think, Web three does not deserve the moniker of Web three when we are still running the server infrastructure that we are running, right? When most of the stuff is still running, relying on Infura, relying on Amazon, relying on on things that you don't control the keys and and et cetera.
1: How are you thinking about that? Because this year has been really tough um, in a lot of ways for folks. There's been a lot of centralized failures um, going back to, you know, like uh, the Terra Luna situation, uh, three arrows capital going down, that leading into a lot of the, you know, crypto lending industry sort of like, crashing and burning uh with a lot of bankruptcies and then of course ftx um which we can't seem to get away from all of those are like you know you've in your whole career here uh, in ethereum have always you've been building out decentralized applications and decentralized uses and then but you can't stop these other centralized entities from forming and people from using them do you feel vindicated in that way or like do you do you wish that people would like kind of remember why the, this technology exists in the first place or how do you think about that in the wake of all all of this um kind of turmoil uh, i don't blame people people for you. i i
0: think as a designer i don't think you can blame people for doing things that are easier right and I think that is the big mm-hmm. lesson I take from all of this, right? And I, that that is the lesson of my career, something that I, I keep learning more and more, right? We wanted to build this thing that was very simple to use, yet was robust, yet was decentralized. But it was simply wasn't possible, right? So in two thousand sixteen to seventeen, uh, if you run Mist, you would you would like it even existed for two years and even running a light client, you still had to sync your Ethereum node for a few hours and use at least one gigabyte before you could use your wallet, right? And the main wallets were yeah. Mist and MetaMask. In MetaMask, you didn't have to do anything. You just clicked, connected it, and it was live, right? And every time you opened Mist, you had to like rethink and it took hours. If you went to MetaMask, Every website was as as live as just a, it was ju- just your browser, right? The browser works perfectly, and every website lo- loads perfectly. If you went to Mist and you tried downloading a decentralized website, like nine times out of ten, it wouldn't load. You wouldn't find the files. You wouldn't like you wouldn't connect to peers. The the experience was broken, right? Experience was a lot yeah. in a lot of ways broken. So it's not surprising that people just Flock to MetaMask, like which was the practical uh, option. But MetaMask is, in a lot, in many senses, a lot better than the other alternative, which is people also flock to, which is let's go to Coinbase, which is even easier to use, or let's go to F- yeah, FTX, which is even easier to use, right? So, yeah,
1: let's deposit my coins and earn 20% interest here, right? Exactly, yeah.
0: As a designer, you can't blame people for doing the easy path, right? You you have to just think, yeah, it is our failure in not helping, not making things even easier and even easier and even easier, not working every day to just, yeah, figuring out what are the barriers, like the barriers of entry, and, and just you have to keep building them down. Even if this one little feature will take you, like, five years and a billion dollars and a hundred different companies trying to fix that.
1: And I, I think, you know, for mass adoption, what you want is you don't want people to know what they're doing or, you know, on the back end. they don't. You don't want them to necessarily know that it's a blockchain-based system or it's peer-to-peer. You want it to be easy, right? You want it to be convenient and you want it to be somehow better than what they were using before so that they come over and start using this product. So I, yeah, I completely understand where you're coming from on the design.
0: Exactly. You you don't want people don't need to know that things are decentralized. They don't need to care that things are decentralized. But decentralization is the thing that you don't actually care until you do very much, right? You don't need to care yeah. about it uh, until it goes down, until someone forbids you to uh, access, accessing your coins, until like you figure out that your coins were never there or they were being like gambled away by someone else. That is the path, right? There's one path in which you don't care, and you care a lot. And we need to build that path in which you don't need to care, but it is it is very easy to use. It's uh, still very easy to use, and in a way, it's better to use.
1: Yeah, and I think the Tornado Cash situation, kind of, yeah, it, or the, I think Tornado Cash actually has been good in that regard because it's it's really woken people up that you know this. Things need to be decentralized, right they need you need to always be building for that so that there isn't the uh, ability for people to come in and and take you off the platform or censure you or whatever. I have a lot of mixed feelings about tornado cash
0: a lot of the things that we are we are working are with premises that the word is going to in the, in the direction, which is I have no doubt that it's going to right The word is going to a direction in which your digital possessions become important where your digital identity is very, very important, right? And in many ways, like there are, like in Brazil, for example, if you have a, a digital, digital company, you have to buy a digital certificate which comes often in a little USB stick or it's, it's like a, a, random, a, a file. And you have to pay like a, lo- a lot of money for that, right? For that little USB stick, and the experience is terrible, right? And what we are trying mm-hmm. to, and if you take a look at what Ledger is doing, like Ledger got the like Ledger just released the Ledger Stack, which I'm very excited about because it was designed by the like the same guy who designed the, the the early iPods, and it's it looks like a beautiful way to own things, right? And soon, like I think people will look at that and ask. Why can't this like why can't I do like everything that I hold that is digital? Why can't I hold it in such an easy way, right? My your your identity is going to be digital, your voting is digital, your money is digital, right? Your domain name is digital. Why can't you hold it in a as easy and as simple and as secure as you can hold a cat picture that you bought on the internet, right? And I think that is yeah. that is my hope, and that, that's why I keep working in this field.
1: Yeah. Well, that's great. Um, let's leave it there, Alex, with the hope and why you're working in this field. Um, and I want you to realize that we just talked for about an hour, and we didn't mm-hmm. really even talk about the DAO at all. So I I think uh, I I deserve that some credit great. for that because <laughs> we've definitely talked about that a Thank lot you for in the that. past. Yeah. <laughs> So why don't you tell folks um, where they can find you and, and and just quickly like what you're working on these days.
0: So I'm working on ENS. I am, uh, look, ENS brought, basically brought me back and, and I used to tell people that like you can find me at AVSA on Twitter but I hope that soon I can just tell you like look look me up as If right? On yeah, whatever right. social media you have, right? And I think that's, It's not, we're not there yet, but I think it's, we're going to be there soon in which like, I believe your identity should not depend on the platform you're using, right? Whatever, like the posts I make, like on, on Twitter should be on whatever platform you're using because the posts belong to me, right? And I I hope we go, I hope that's the next step, right? I hope it's not. Like we, do, we don't migrate away from Twitter into like Mastodon or just federated server where people can kick you out, but rather a place in which you own your posts, the posts belong to you, and you can visualize them and follow people on multiple platforms at the same time and not have to choose between one or, or the other.
1: Yeah, that's a great, great point. Okay. Well, APSA.eth, that's the goal here. And hopefully uh, very soon we'll be able to just type that into any browser and, and find out what you're doing. Um, Alex, thank you. Uh, you're not only um, a great husband or an excellent husband, you're an excellent interview uh, <laughs> guest as well. So thank you very much. Thank you, Matt. Well, hey, that's it for another episode of Decent People. Thanks so much for joining us. Make sure to hit that subscribe button. Check us out on the web at decentral.io. We're on Twitter at Decentral Media. Our shows are produced by Matt Solon. The music is courtesy of Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes. Thanks so much. Take care.